Welcome to BIB Today, where the daily business news podcast from Business and Vancouver Newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. It appears there's tax trouble ahead for Canadian businesses selling to Americans. This follows a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that requires out-of-state merchants to charge and collect sales taxes for any products and services aimed at those Americans. So we're going to speak to KPMG partner Noreen Marchand about how this ruling will cause some headaches for a lot of our domestic partners here. Tyler, of course, there are lots of stereotypes about the millennial worker, and uh, we're going to discuss how some of those stereotypes may not actually reflect reality here in Metro Vancouver. Elevator Strategies Vice President Peter Terweem is going to discuss a new report examining how this generation approaches the workforce. But first, let's talk to Noreen Marchand from KPMG. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled states have the right to make out-of-state businesses charge and collect sales taxes. So this ruling could have a great dampening effect on a lot of these B.C. businesses we know, like Lululemon, Aritzia, Arcteryx, that generate so much of the revenue by selling to Americans. Joining us today to talk about the follow-up from this ruling, it is Noreen Marchand. She is a partner and the Toronto leader for U.S. Corporate Tax Services at KPMG. Noreen, thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. So this was uh, effectively one of the Amazon advantages in the world. And uh, it, does, it, does it properly level the playing field in a certain way? Well, from my perspective, I'm not sure it levels the playing field. I think it actually creates a significant burden mm-hmm. on many, many Canadian businesses that want to sell in the U.S., Uh, And there's a significant impact, in my view, uh, in the technology sector. I do a lot of work with privately owned technology companies, either in the gaming sector or with other software and technology businesses. And this ruling is going to have a significant impact on their ability to compete from a price perspective, as well as to manage the cost of continuing to do business in the United States. So was that an unintended consequence? Um, I can't speak to whether it was intended or, or unintended, but it definitely is a significant impact. And maybe to explain that, I can share a story about a technology company that I recently worked with. They were an early stage technology company. Uh, They sold predominantly software. There was a small hardware component that some customers bought, but it was predominantly software. And much like most early stage companies, they're focused on first developing their technology and then secondly, getting to market. They usually have very limited knowledge in-house on state tax laws, and they're directing all of their dollars to their business, so they're very limited in their ability to engage advisors. This company in particular, uh, they wanted to continue growing, and they required additional investment, and the investors that they were speaking with were very concerned about liabilities for unpaid taxes, particularly in the area of sales tax, because the business just wanted to get to market and make the sale, they weren't worrying about where they needed to charge and collect taxes. Uh, uh. So the CFO came to me and said, like, what do we do? 
we're going to have a significant amount of investment dollars held up to cover off undisclosed tax liabilities. Are these real? Do we really need to comply? Or is there a way to manage this? And so that's what I helped with. Uh, we went through this easy four-step process. First, understanding where the business carried on activities and whether those activities were enough for the business to be subject to tax. Secondly, we confirmed, is what they're selling actually taxable in the states where they have obligations? Third, are either their customers exempt or because of the way the customers are using their software, are the sales exempt? And then lastly, quantifying where there were obligations. How many dollars are we talking about here? So th that's the process we went through for them. And we were really able to whittle down the exposure because they didn't have a lot of physical presence in the States. And that's very common with the technology company. They don't have offices or other places of business in the States, and they very rarely have employees or other reps traveling around. Uh, they just do transactions over the internet. And this, uh, this uh, decision last week changes that landscape. Mm. You're not just able to whittle down where you're subject to tax because you physically weren't there anymore. Now, if a state has economic levels, for example, dollar revenue thresholds or number of transaction thresholds and you pass those, then the state can apply their taxes to you. And that, that really changes the playing ground. And in my view, it's not very level now. Okay. Well, at, at the top that I mentioned, you know, there's big companies like Lululemon, Arcteryx that obviously sell products to the United States. But I think what you're getting at here is that maybe some of these smaller companies, they don't necessarily have the resources to figure out all of the nuances of this new ruling here. Is this going to hit the smaller companies selling to Americans more so than the bigger companies, Noreen? I think it's going to hit everyone. Um, the bigger companies tend to have more resources. They, many of them have tax departments or well-developed relationships with tax advisors. And so they're already dealing with this in, in one way or another. I think the early stage technology companies, this probably hasn't been priority one for them. And they've been able to put it aside, maybe with some high level analysis, and they're not having to comply with states. Now this decision means they need to look at it a little bit more closely and states where, let's say, they have greater than $100,000 of sales to customers in a state or greater than 200 transactions completed with customers in a state, even without going there, they're going to have to comply with those state tax laws. Is it going to partly offset the uh, Canadian dollar and uh, by by virtue of having a lot of these companies having to charge more for their products to get into the U.S.? Um, that may have um, some play here. I guess if, if you step back and think about the Canadian businesses that are selling into the U.S., um, either in the gaming or other software sectors, they tend to have a pretty unique product 
And the price of the product may or may not deter customers from buying it. And the sales tax itself is five, six, seven percent. So that may not be the end of the world. I see the bigger impact being the actual cost of implementing a process to manage, uh, being able to comply, having the infrastructure either in-house or using advisors to know where and when you're required to charge tax, and then filing all of those tax returns so that you can remit the taxes. And depending upon your volume, depending upon the jurisdiction, you could be filing tax returns monthly, quarterly, or annually. And when you're doing each jurisdiction separately, that can really add up to a lot of administration. So at this point, are Canadian businesses just going to have to find a way to be more competitive versus their American counterparts? Or is it going to be a more of an internal struggle within their companies figuring out how to find, I guess, a, a lot of unique, ingenious kind of ways to fix this problem here? Yeah, I, I think it's the latter. If you look at um, across the United States, this is going to apply to, for example, um, you know, foreign non-state um, companies too. So if you had a New York-based company that was going to be um, selling into Florida, these rules apply the same way there as a Canadian business selling into the U.S. So multi-state businesses domestically in the U.S. are going to be subject to these increasing burdens too. It's not just directed at foreign non-U.S. businesses. So the business that is um, located only in one jurisdiction and only sells in that jurisdiction they're not going to be bothered by this tax law and it's going to level the playing ground for them because it's going to be harder for out-of-state businesses to compete. They're the winners here. Anybody who's trying to sell into a jurisdiction from a remote location, whether they're Canadian or whether they're U.S., they're going to have the, the bigger burden today. I'm curious about what we do in this country. Do do we have the same sort of system of uh, American companies selling into Canadian provinces? I'm not a, a practitioner in the area of uh, Canadian uh, HST and, and direct taxes. Um, so I, I want to be careful with what I say here. Um, we do have a system and foreign businesses selling into Canada do have to comply if they have the same sort of threshold. I don't believe that our thresholds are the same as what this Wayfair decision is suggesting is okay. So I guess we'll see if, if the other shoe drops here and we see some additional changes. Yeah. Well, Noreen, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. We're going to be sitting back watching what happens with a lot of these Canadian businesses. And we do appreciate you offering your expertise to us. Thank you very much. That's Noreen Marchand. She is a partner and Toronto leader for U.S. Corporate Tax Services at KPMG. So stay with us. Peter Terweem from Elevator Strategies is going to join us next to talk about how millennials feel about their workplaces.
They're known as a generation that moves around from job to job with maybe a little bit more frequency than their older cohorts. Hey, hang on. We're known. That's what you should say. Okay, I should, I, I'm technically a millennial. I'll, I'll acknowledge that. But uh, does that mean other millennials, including my own generation, are actually unsatisfied with their careers, especially those based here in Metro Vancouver? This might not actually be the case. This is according to new research out from Elevator Strategies. And joining us today to talk about how Metro Vancouver millennials are approaching the workforce, it is Peter Tarim. He is Executive Vice President of Purpose and Brand Citizenship at Elevator Strategies. Peter, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks very much for having me. Good afternoon. So are, are those unflattering stereotypes about my generation, are, are they actually true, Peter? Do, do, are, are we really prickly when it comes to getting into the workforce and being satisfied with our jobs? No, actually, um, I, I think, uh, as a matter of fact, quite the, quite the contrary. Um, when it comes to job satisfaction, for example, uh, based on the survey that we completed of over 500 millennials in the Lower Mainland, uh, 72% said that they were satisfied with their uh, current job or or career, and that satisfaction actually rose the older people um, were. So it started around 62% in the 18 to 24 range and rose as high as 81% amongst uh, 35 to 39 years old. So what are the uh, the values that millennials are seeking and, I guess in this case, getting that is uh, contributing to happiness? Uh, specifically in the workplace or, yeah. or generally speaking? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the most important things um, that we found is that uh, people are looking to align their personal values with those of the workplace. Now, of course, it's difficult to generalize a- about an entire generation sharing all the same values, but I think we uh, can certainly say that there are some broad themes amongst those, uh, amongst millennials, as it were. And some of those themes r- relate to um, issues uh, pertaining to uh, wanting to work for employers specifically that have some sense of purpose uh, associated with the kind of work um, that, uh, or, or the sort of strategy that they have as a company. We're seeing that increasingly brands like whether it's uh, Unilever or Van City, Mountain Equipment Co-op and so on. These are organizations that are trying to stake a claim um, around a social purpose that goes beyond just making money alone. And that's the kind of uh, environment that millennials like to find themselves working in. Do you think that that suggests then that if we were more of, say, a factory city, a manufacturing city, even a smokestack kind of city, that you wouldn't see this degree of satisfaction? Well, um, it's difficult to uh, ascertain specifically whether that might be the case. However, if we dig a little deeper in terms of education, for example, what we find is that people who have lower levels of education, and which, are, which is typically what you'll find more of in, a, let's say, a smokestack community, that people with lower levels of education have less satisfaction with the work that they uh, find themselves in. And that's likely because they just want to be able to find a job. Uh, they don't necessarily have the skills to uh, find a job that's specifically aligned with what they're interested in. And so they take a job that provides them with a decent wage, let's say, but might not exist exactly, you know, fill them with joy every morning when they're going to work. So education is probably the bigger, the biggest predictor around the degree to which people have satisfaction uh, at work. The more education you have, the more choices you have available to you, and the more choosy I think you can be around where you choose to um, spend your day between nine and five mm. One or thing beyond. That's- 
one thing that seems to be out of control of a lot of millennials, though, is maybe housing affordability issues. And I'm wondering if that dictates maybe job satisfaction or even job choices. If you are looking at a region that is very expensive to live in, maybe people would look elsewhere to, say, Calgary, where there's you know a cheaper cost of living, for example. Does that dictate maybe people's satisfaction at all when it comes to the workforce? That the, the price of local housing? Well, uh, I'm... We've seen, I think, uh, if, if you look at some of the stats that have come out of the city of late, the city of Vancouver and, and the region as a whole, that there have there has been a movement of millennials, as it were, out of the lower mainland to other places, whether they're going to Calgary or Edmonton or somewhere into the interior. Um, that I'm not uh, specifically aware of, but they, but you know, there's no question that housing is a top concern, and what we find is that. The millennials that we surveyed, only 27% of them own a home in the Lower Mainland. That contrasts with about half of millennials um, in the rest of Canada, according to a survey that the TD Bank did. So if home ownership is a critical uh, concern for somebody or, or, or a marker in terms of their success in life, then certainly trying to find work in the Lower Mainland that will pay a salary that will allow you to afford a home is a major challenge. Um, and despite the fact that a lot of people assume that millennials are less interested in owning a home, um, that's actually not uh, so much what we found uh, ourselves. A strong majority of them certainly view owning a home as a, as, or having a home, of course, and housing as, as one of those really need to have basic requirements. Um, and they want to own a home at the point in time that they can afford to. So uh, it still is one of those rites of passage, I guess, that, um, you know, that's part of the society that we live in. Owning a home equals, you know, having achieved a certain level of success and stability in life. Yeah, uh, even just the stability of renting, uh, it would be a, a fairly big value for a lot of young people as they launch their careers. Are we witnessing, do you think, a bit of a unique tension here between career and lifestyle that, um, that you know, it poses a real problem for us as a, as a city and as a region? Well, I think unquestionably uh, the fact that uh, it's uh, almost unaffordable to to buy a home, particularly if you come out of, let's say, university, you've got a little bit of student debt. Um, you know, we've seen housing prices just skyrocket to the point that it requires something like 27 years just to afford a decent down payment, uh, let alone trying to afford the mortgage itself. So it's uh, it anecdotally, certainly based on a lot of the conversations that we've been having as well around this particular research, we are, you know, hearing people saying, you know, I need to leave the city. I can't afford to. I can't afford to live here, or I need to go far, much further out into the valley. You're seeing it in places like Squamish as well, which is booming, um, strictly around that housing affordability issue. So, you know, there's lots of policy levers, of course, that government has been using of late to try and address housing, and we may all have our own opinions about their degree of success or appropriateness. But I think the point remains that housing is going to continue to be a major policy issue that governments of all levels need to continue to address. Because if we don't do it, Vancouver, I think, runs the risk of having a very rich class of people um, who are who can afford to live there, uh, a number of perhaps lower income people who are living in some form of collective housing, um, the number of roommates and so on, which is also what we're seeing. And then we kind of hollow out the middle. And, um, you know, that would be a real shame for the city. 
So, Peter, I have uh, way too many friends that are journalists, and when you hear them, you know, they're doing a lot of freelance work, a lot of contract work here or there. I, I don't really bat an eye. To me, that's just kind of part of the game with regards to this profession. But with regards to this age cohort, I, I mean, is this common that a lot of these younger people are picking up a lot of, say, casual work, a lot of part-time work just to, um, you know, pay the bills every month? Right. So some people call that the gig economy um, mm-hmm. and, and an expectation that, you know, millennials want freelance work uh, or are happy with that kind of work. The reality is two thirds of millennials still want to have a fulfilling career. Uh, and that is of real importance to them. And an equal number, about 62 percent, uh, are employed full time. Uh, 21% of them have part-time employment, and only 16% are engaged in contract or, or freelance or, or casual work. Um, again, not surprisingly, full-time employment increases with age. Uh, so the older you get, the more likely you are to have full-time work. So younger millennials are around 43%. Older millennials, it pushes past 70%. And then again, full-time employment also links with the point I made earlier about formal education. So uh, if you are a post-graduate from a, some form of post-secondary institute, then you're 80% likely to be full-time uh, employed. So um so despite the fact that I think people like a certain amount of flexibility or talk about liking that flexibility, I think still having a full-time job is, is, uh, is an aspiration that millennials continue to share with uh, other generations that are older than them. Yeah. It, so apart from this drive for purpose or the, uh, the desire to be aligned with uh, positions that have purpose, do you think there has been a really any kind of a significant generational change? in what we value in work and what we expect from it and what our ambitions are with it? Well, yeah, I think beyond that purpose piece, um, I think people are looking still to be able to have an environment where they're respected and where and where there's less uh, hierarchy uh, associated with, with uh, the way that the organization is run, so more collaborative decision-making and things of that kind. I think loyalty is something that we've also seen uh, um, eroded over time, uh, particularly amongst this generation, the millennial generation. They've seen their parents, um, in many cases, get laid off or uh, otherwise find their skill set not keeping up with the economy around them. So there is definitely a higher degree of self-interest, if you will, that millennials have. Uh, Their number one priority is... um, looking after their 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 own needs in life and being sort of happy and satisfied and so on. So that really does drive some of the decisions that they're making around who they want to work with and how long they're going to work there and the kind of work environment they're going to put up with. And, and if they find that an employer isn't respecting them or isn't giving them opportunities to grow professionally, they're mobile enough that they're happy to just move on to the next organization that that will meet their needs. Well, you know, Peter, I think this interview, it's helped inspire me to actively, openly admit that I am a millennial. I'll, I'll do that going forward in public. <laughs> and uh, for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks very much for having me. That's Peter Turween. He is Executive Vice President of Purpose and Brand Citizenship at Elevator Strategies. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher, of course. And don't forget to leave a review. Try to make it five stars if you can. Be sure to find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. Thanks a lot for listening. 